Listen to these words. We are finishing our sermon series through selections through the book of Acts um, in a series entitled The Church's Mission, uh, looking at how the book of Acts informs the mission of our church here today. And today we're in Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. Uh, This is God's word. We would be wise to listen. After three days, uh, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets." And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Chase Woodhouse. I'm one of the church planting residents here at Sojourn Houston. It's an honor to be with you this morning to preach the word of the Lord again as I was here last week. And uh, it's just exciting to be able to be back a second time to really conclude uh, the book of Acts that y'all have been going through for the past, I don't know, a couple months, I think. And so uh, I just want to give you a little bit of an introduction of who I am and what it means that I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn Houston. Because if you're new here, you'll know you step foot into Sojourn Heights. And so it's a bit strange maybe to hear us talk about Sojourn Houston. So let me bring a little bit of clarity to this. Sojourn Heights is a congregation within the Sojourn Houston church family, which is made up of five local congregations. Sojourn Heights, Montrose, Oak Forest, Spring Branch, and Galleria, and hoping to plant uh, a new one in uh, Third Ward, or it's called Southside. And so we, uh, here at Sojourn Heights, we're a part of the Sojourn Houston church family. And here's what we want to do. We want to go make disciples. We want to multiply parishes. And we want to plant churches throughout Houston so that the gospel becomes unignorable throughout the city of Houston. To where we see on every street a parish planted so that neighbors, when they see someone and they know that that person's a Christian, they know they're a member maybe of Sojourn Houston, they will know what they believe 
not what they hear about Christianity on the news. They will know what this person believes because this person has loved them and shared the good news of Jesus with them. This is our hope. This is our vision. We want to see Houston saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm one of the three church planting residents. Like I said, uh, D'Amico and Raph are about to launch Sojourn Southside later this year. And uh, I really encourage you, I encouraged you last week, but to reach out to them, to join their prayer list, um, to keep updated with what the Lord is doing through them because it's really exciting. And then what we hope to do in the next uh, two years by 2024, around this time, is we hope to launch Sojourn Southwest. Uh, when I say Southwest, I'm talking about Southwest Houston. And what that means is Bel Air, Myerland, Gulfton, Sharpstown, Braze Oaks, Brayburn, all of those communities are within what we call Southwest Houston. And so we want to see a Sojourn Church planted and established in this community. And so like I do every time, I want to ask each and every one of you to consider selling your homes and joining our core team and moving into our community so that we can together go forth and proclaim the gospel. It's a big ask. I realize this. But it's important that we move into the community and begin to get to know our neighbors so that the gospel is saturated throughout Southwest Houston. So I am asking that. I'm also asking that some of you consider just joining our prayer team. I've got a sign-up sheet in the hallway. I would love it if you would put your email down, sign up to just receive our, our, our prayer emails that happen once a month. And I would love for you to join us in praying uh, for our family, for our church plant. Uh, we would really love that. And then lastly... Um, we are raising financial support so that as a family, we can continue to do this full time. So if you're interested in partnering with us, come talk to me after. Uh, or just come talk to me after because you want to talk to me. I would love to get to know you and hang out with you. Just because you come up to me, I'm not going to assume that you're ready to donate money. Just heads up. So uh, with all that being said, we're going to finish the book of Acts. And um, as I was reading this text and trying to come up with what is the main idea of this text, I think what I stumbled upon is a great summary of the whole book of Acts. And so really, I think this, this last text here is a great opportunity for us to just look at the, the whole book of Acts and say, okay, what, what is this about? What is happening here? What's the one of the main ideas that Luke is trying to convey to us uh, throughout this whole book? And so um, here's kind of what, what I arrived at. This is not Gospel. This is my own understanding of this passage. But here's what I, I came, at, uh, came to. Through suffering and through open and closed hearts, the gospel continues to go forth with all boldness and without hindrance. So through suffering and through open and closed hearts, the gospel continues to go forth with all boldness and without hindrance. So this morning we're going to kind of break down that statement and look at this text to see what we can glean from it and see what the Lord might have for us. And first, we're going to discuss the, the statement that says, through suffering. Through suffering, the gospel goes forth. Uh, and, and I want to start by just looking at what Paul has had happen to him since Acts 26. And, and last week, if you were here, Acts 26, Paul is standing on trial before Agrippa, before Festus, before uh, Agrippa's sister, and he is proclaiming the gospel, essentially. And he is defending that he has been faithful to Jesus' call on his life. Here's the thing, though. Paul's actually standing on trial because Paul is... Um, uh, he's, they're, they're trying to kill him. 
They're trying to kill him, and he's supposed to be giving a defense as to why he shouldn't die. And what Paul instead says is, behold, here is Jesus. And, uh, and, and so after this, Paul, um, essentially, he sets sail to Rome because he has appealed to Caesar. So Paul sets sail to Rome, and, and I'm going to really summarize chapter 27, 28 as quickly as I can. Essentially, Paul's on a boat, and uh, there's a storm that starts coming. Paul says, you know, hang on. You know, we, we really should stay here in this place. They had stopped, and we should really stay here. They didn't. They kept going, and a storm hit them, and it was a massive storm that just kept going on for days on end. And uh, they, they, the sailors and Paul, for a while, didn't know if they were going to make it. It was one of those types of storms. And uh, one night, uh, an angel appeared to Paul and told Paul, you are going to reach Rome. You're going to give an account to Caesar. And, and everyone on this ship will be delivered with you. So Paul stands up to them and says, hey, okay, we're, we're going to make it. Relax, eat some food. We're going to make it. We're going to be shipwrecked, but we're going to make it. And so they, uh, they actually are shipwrecked uh, into an island called Malta. And that's where um, Paul goes into this island. They are welcomed by the native people there. They're, they're so happy to see them. Uh, and then Paul was uh, handling firewood, and a viper comes out and bites his hand and hangs on him to where Paul's holding him up, and there's a viper hanging out. Okay? And so um, obviously the people think at that point, okay, this is a dead man. He must have been a really bad person. He's just, he's going to die. Paul doesn't die. They think him to be God. And, and we don't actually see Paul's response here in Acts 27, but I can guarantee you Paul is not all about being called God. He will absolutely point to Jesus. And so he goes on and heals some people on the island. And then eventually Paul does make it to Rome. And in Acts 28, in seven, uh, starting in verse 17, Paul has finally made it to Rome. And if you remember in Acts 23, Jesus tells Paul that he will go to Rome and he will give a defense for Jesus before Caesar. So this is finally starting to come to fruition. What the Lord has promised finally started to come. But I want us to think about what Paul has gone through just to get to Rome. He has been arrested. He has been really, actually, he was saved by being arrested. There was a lynch mob formed by the Jews to kill him. And he was arrested to be saved from dying right then. And then he's arrested and in, in jail for a long time and then finally gets to Rome. And in Rome, he's under house arrest. He cannot leave. And he will be there. It doesn't say here in Acts, but we know from church history, he will be there for two years. For two years, Paul will be under house arrest. And here's this. This is, this is insane to me. I did not know this. From all accounts, what we can really gather, and because we know Jesus' words are true, Paul does go and give a defense before Caesar. Do you know who the Caesar was? Nero. The guy who burned Christians for street lamps. He gives a defense Nero hears the gospel. And then church history says Paul was actually released, goes out and does more ministry, is later arrested again, and this time he is beheaded for Jesus by Nero. So this is what ends up happening. Paul suffered in getting here. But he didn't just suffer in getting here. Paul suffered greatly before this too. Look with me with, uh, at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians uh, 11 Verses 24 through 27. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul has greatly suffered for the sake of the gospel. But here's the crazy part that actually was shocking to me. This letter to, Second, uh, to the church in Corinthian, uh, Corinth um, was written five years before Acts 28 happens. Five-ish years before Acts 28 happens. And Paul has already been through this. And he's going to go through more. And eventually he will be beheaded because of loving Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. Paul has absolutely suffered. He has absolutely suffered. But here in the West, and, and I touched on this last week, and I just want to go into it a little bit more. Um, Tim Keller writes a book uh, called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I highly recommend it. Um, but in the book, he declares that here in the West, we are the least prepared for suffering, least prepared culture for, uh, to deal with suffering throughout human history. We are the least prepared, prepared for it. And he, the reason why, he says, is because we uh, live in a culture that has a naturalistic worldview. What we see is what there is according to our culture. There is no higher power. There is no ultimate life meaning. There is no objective standard of morality. What we see is what we get. And so um, Keller actually says this. There's a quote from, uh, from this book that I mentioned. If you accept the strictly secular assumption that this is solely a materialistic universe, then that which gives your life purpose would have to be some material good or this world condition, some kind of comfort or safety and pleasure. If we accept, like our culture does, that this world is all there is, inevitably what's going to happen is we're going to have to create a meaning of life. Why are we here? What am I ultimately trying to pursue? Even if you don't think you're doing that, you are doing it. And so what we've done here in the West is we have taken this idea of, okay, this is all there is, therefore I am going to... Put my hope in X, Y, Z. I'm going to put my hope in, in getting a really good job and having a, a set amount of money and eventually retiring at a, at a young age and, and, and having this type of lifestyle. Or maybe you set your hope in, I've got to have a, a spouse and then I've got to have children in order to feel love, in order to have meaning in this life. Or what can happen is, you know, hey, I see so much injustice on this earth. And since there is no higher power, since there is no um, justice, I have to pursue justice at all costs. What happens when we live in this worldview is we have to create meaning. And the meaning has to come from that which we see. And what this does when this happens is this causes us to not be prepared for suffering. Because when suffering comes, all suffering is, in this worldview, is an, is an object that's blocking us from getting to our goal. 
Suffering is an object that blocks us from getting to our goal. And so we have to avoid it at all costs. So if we're hoping to have a certain type of lifestyle, then, then if our business is going down and I can't seem to get it back up, this is blocking me from getting to my ultimate goal. This has no meaning. This is the enemy, suffering. Or if I have this certain, uh, I want to have a family, I want to feel loved, and I can't seem to find a spouse, I can't seem, then this type of suffering is, is blocking you from getting to your ultimate goal. And so what happens in our culture is we end up really trying to get to a goal, and then when suffering does come, we can't handle it. It, it causes us to break down causes us to lose all hope. And I think that's part of the reason why we are so anxious as a culture. Now, here in the church, though, what the West understands about suffering, that's not what the scriptures say. Suffering is not just an object blocking us to get to our ultimate goal. Here's what scripture says. I'm going to give you a very brief overview. This question about suffering and evil and persecution, pain, hardship, it's not easy to answer. In fact, I don't believe you can perfectly answer the question of why. However, what I hope to give you is a biblical understanding of what suffering is and why, in some ways, why it happens, so that even when you don't have the ultimate answer of why is this happening to me, you can know what God is doing in the suffering so that we can be prepared. Because remember, Jesus says that we will be persecuted, we will suffer. This is going to happen. But here's what I think we need to know about suffering. First, when it comes to the question of why does suffering happen in the first place? If God is so good and he's all powerful and he's all knowing, why does suffering happen? Why did it come about? I'm, I'm sorry to say, I, we can't answer that question perfectly. We really can't. There's nothing in Scripture that would, that would lead us to, to a certain answer that would help us feel perfectly comfortable. But there is something in Scripture that leads me, and I believe it will lead all of us in Christ, to have full assurance in the goodness of God. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. When he created this world, he knew that the fall would happen and suffering and pain would come. He knew Here's the kicker. Jesus knew that he would have to come to this earth and suffer. He knew that he would have to come to this earth and suffer. He would be spat upon. He would be crucified. He would take on all of our sin upon himself and on the cross absorb the judgment of God that we all deserve. And he still created the world. We don't know the answer why. We never will know the answer why. But what we do know is that God has suffered with us. He saw what would happen and he deemed it good enough to come and to create the world and then eventually enter into the suffering and to die. So though suffering is real and though it is hard, we know that God is good and he loves us and he has a good plan because he entered into the suffering. He entered into it. He did not avoid it. And I think that's really important for us to look at when we first talk about suffering. He is good, all-knowing, 
and all-powerful, and he suffered with us. Okay? But also, I want to show us two points, that suffering is not pointless as a believer. It does good, and it is used to propel the gospel forward. Those are the two things I want to talk about. So first, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We know we, we know that suffering will produce endurance, and endurance will produce character, and character will produce hope because God and his love are within us. Suffering is not meaningless for those in Christ. Suffering is redeemed by Christ. He uses our pain and our suffering for our good and our sanctification. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite preachers. I would love to go to England and go to where he lived and go to where he preached and just sit there and just, it's just cool. I like history too. And Charles Spurgeon um, really, really suffered throughout his life. He was ridden with deep depression. In an age where there was no medication for depression, Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression for almost his whole life. Not only that, as he became uh, famous and started preaching a lot, uh, he later developed gout, which is a, a severe, painful disease that causes, causes his hands and his legs to swell into insane, I mean, just huge, to where he couldn't even pick up a pen to write. He couldn't stand up to walk. There were times in his writings where he would groan with how much pain he was in and just to turn over as he was laying in bed to turn over was severely painful. And then his wife was also bedridden at times. This family deeply suffered. Charles Spurgeon knew what it meant to suffer. And I want to read something that I read this morning about his life. Here we see a marvelous paradox in Spurgeon's experiential theology. He candidly admits that he dreaded suffering and would do whatever he legitimately could to avoid it. Yet, when not suffering acutely, he actually longed for it. This is a quote from Spurgeon. The way to stronger faith usually lies along the rough pathway of sorrow, he said. I am afraid that all the grace that I have got out of comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. This man who deeply suffered at the end of his life said suffering was the best thing that happened to me. And if I can summarize it, it's because he got more of Christ. In Philippians 4, Paul says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul wrote this letter 
in under house arrest in Rome when Acts 28 is happening. He wrote this letter in, in prison, not knowing if he was going to live or die. He found the secret. The secret was Christ. But also, I think Paul's suffering caused the gospel to go forward. In Acts 27, when we see Paul on the sea, he responds so well to what was happening and is faithful and is a good, really kind of a good prisoner. In fact, um, because of Paul, the Roman guards didn't want to kill all the prisoners when they were shipwrecked because they didn't want to kill Paul. And so essentially what happens is Paul eventually, when he does get to Rome, I believe he's put under house arrest because he has been a faithful, good uh, prisoner, essentially. So all this suffering and what they went through, saw, they allowed, it allowed them to see that Paul was a good person and it allowed them to put Paul in house arrest rather than actually prison, in actual prison. And in house arrest, Paul is able to minister faithfully for two years. Suffering will always propel the gospel forward. So here's, here's, I know that was a lot and that was long. Let me summarize it with this. We will suffer. We will go through really hard times. But in that suffering, if we take it to the Lord and we come to him and we say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to come and heal me. I need you to rescue me. I need you to be with me. There we will find rest. And Jesus will take our suffering and he will turn it out for good. So when suffering comes, we must hold fast to Jesus and we must know that suffering will propel the gospel forward if we remain faithful to him. So I want to make sure we understand this because I think sometimes here in the West we forget suffering will come. But God is going to use it for our good and for his glory. Okay, in the next part, in actual Acts 28, um, the, the next part I said, uh, through suffering and through op open and closed hearts. So Paul, three days after finally arriving in Rome, has the Jews come to his home. And basically, they know about Christian Christianity, the way, the sect, they call it. They know it, and they're like, everybody speaks against it. But Paul, we don't really know you, so we'll sit and listen to you. And so for a day, Paul opens the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he tells them about the kingdom of God, and he tells them about who Jesus is and how he is the Messiah, the Lord, the one who rose from the dead. And we see some people say yes, and we see some people say no. And then Paul uh, quotes Isaiah to them. And I want to speak about that uh, briefly. Let me see if I can find it in my Bible. There it is. In verse 26, it says, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with the heart, and turn, and I would heal them. I want to share with you what I've learned recently from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary's professor, Dr. Greg Beal. Um, anytime we see in the scriptures, in the Old Testament specifically, um, a physical ailment used as a metaphor. In his opinion, every time we see this used, it is in connection to idolatry. It is meant to convey idolatry. 
So when our eyes are blind, it's because we are idolatrous. So why are the Jewish people not hearing what Paul has to say? Because their hearts are idolatrous. They don't want to hear the word of the Lord. They ultimately want something else. Church, I think this is a really important warning for us to heed this morning. Because to have Jesus means to to lay down our lives totally and completely. Everything is given to him in faith. If we try to hold on to our idols, we can't have Jesus. That's why he says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and come with me. You must willingly pick up your instrument of death and die and come with me. When we're baptized, it says we are buried with Christ. And we are raised to follow him in newness of life. When we follow Jesus, when we come to Jesus with our hearts fully open to him, say, I am yours, save me from my sins, he accepts us. When we come to him and say, yeah, I like this Jesus thing, but I also want to keep this aspect of my life. I don't want this part touched. That's idolatry. It's putting whatever it is that you're holding back as more important than the Lord. This is the most dangerous thing anyone in this room can do. To put something above the Lord. When you give your life to Jesus and you surrender everything over to him, it is scary. Absolutely. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't have control anymore. But at the same time, if you give your life to Jesus and you give him complete and total control, then the God who loves you and created you and who is all-knowing and all-good has all authority over your life, and he desires only good for you. So even though you're not in control, he is, and it's safe. You find safety and rest. Here the Jewish people could not, some of them, could not surrender. I want to plead with you in here. If you... I have not given your life fully over to Jesus, believed in him in faith, and said, I'm in, all in. Push all your chips in on Jesus. May I plead with you, come to Jesus. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. But the only way you can taste and see is to die, is to lay down your life and come to Jesus. So this, I think, is a really important warning for us. But for those of us who are in Christ, it's also a great encouragement. Because although they didn't listen, notice what Paul says here. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul, this guy Paul, not the Paul in the scripture. This guy Paul actually pointed this out to me this week. Let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. It must have been discouraging for Paul to preach for a day, a day, and to have people walk away. But what was encouraging to Paul was that the gospel has gone forth. Brothers and sisters, there are times in life where we're going to try to share the gospel with someone, where we're going to labor faithfully to proclaim the good news to our neighbors, to love them, to care for them, and they're going to say no. And that can be very discouraging when it happens over and over and over again. But here in this text, I want to remind you that God is still pushing his gospel forward and he is still drawing people to himself. So let's not grow weary. 
Keep our hands to the plow. Keep going forward in love. Bless your neighbors. Invite them in. Even if they say no to Jesus, keep loving them. Keep sharing the gospel with them because maybe the Lord will open their hearts. And even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, he will bring about his kingdom. The gospel will continue to go forth, which is what I want to talk about now. Through open and closed hearts, the gospel continues to go forth with all boldness and without hindrance. I love what Paul does here. For two years, he's, he's living here. He's writing Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. Those are the four books he writes in Acts 28. When the two years he's there, he writes those letters to the churches. And in these two years, people keep coming to him. He's on his, like, he could die. And people are still coming to him. And with all boldness and without any hindrance, Paul is able to proclaim the gospel. And I want to talk about what's happening in our current situation here in the United States right now. There are some of us in here who are going to be very afraid of what's happening. Culture is absolutely shifting away from a Judeo-Christian value and kind of going off into something different. And this, this is not good. This is not good. But I want to say this. It's not unexpected. It's not unexpected. And I want to share this too. Even if the worst case scenario happens, where we are no longer allowed to freely gather and we are no longer allowed to worship the Lord right here in this building, even if we are persecuted and suffer for the name of Jesus, the gospel will continue to go forth with all boldness and without hindrance. Just because our culture is shifting away, it doesn't mean things are going bad. In fact, throughout history, when things go like this and they start looking bad, it's really good for the church. The Lord uses this, this turning away, which is not a good thing, and he creates something beautiful within it. How do we know this? Well, there's plenty of examples in Scripture, but I want to give you just two that happened, it's happened in the past 100 years. In Iran, when Iran was taken over and the Islamic Republic took over, it was, was established, and basically freedom of religion was gone, at that time, in, about 20 years ago, there were between 5,000 and 10,000 Muslims who had become Christians. Today, there are between 800,000 and 1 million former Muslims who profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In a land where you are not allowed to worship freely, in a land where if you convert, you are killed, possibly your whole family and the person who converted you, in that land where you cannot freely worship, the gospel continues to go forth with all boldness and without hindrance. In China, the government released two different white papers on religious freedom, it's called. Uh, and these are the numbers from the government. In 1997, there were 10 million Christians. In 2018, there were 38 million Christians. In countries in a, a communist rule, the gospel continues to go forth with all boldness and without hindrance. Church, if things start to get bad here, which I believe it will, Jesus says we're going to suffer. We're going to be persecuted. At some point, it will happen here. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. We can rejoice knowing that our God is sovereignly in control and he is going to bring about his kingdom. It will not be stopped. 
So all we have to do is to continue to labor well, continue to love the Lord well, continue to love our neighbors, our, our, our brothers and sisters well, love our neighbors well, boldly proclaim the gospel, and trust him. We don't have to be afraid. He's got it. If we lose our freedom, we have the freedom in Christ. They can't take that. They can take my personal freedom all they want. I have freedom in Christ. And let me say this to, to conclude. I was listening to a podcast this week called You're Not Crazy. I think it's called Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. Uh, it's excellent. You don't have to be a pastor to listen to it. It's just wonderful. Um, but, but they talk about Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Every time I read this text, here's how I pictured it working out. The church was a gated community, and hell was attacking us, and it wouldn't prevail. That's not what it says. That's not what it says at all. What it actually says is the gated community is hell, is the enemy's domain, and it can't prevail the church's offensive tactics. What is our offensive tactics? To love and to proclaim the gospel. What Jesus was saying to Peter here is that Satan has control. He's got areas and kingdoms. And you know what? You, he can't stop you. He can't stop the church. Why? Because when Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended on high, he is now the king over all things. He has authority over all. And so when he, when he says the gates of hell will not prevail, he's coming and he's breaking down the gates of hell. He's coming and he's taking hearts. And he's bringing them home. We worship in Houston, Texas because that text is true. We worship here right now because this text is true. Church, we are going to suffer just like Paul did. We're going to encounter people that are open to the gospel. And we're going to encounter people that are closed to the gospel. But we know that the Lord will establish his kingdom his gospel will go forth with, without hindrance and with all boldness. And we must remain faithful. Love the Lord. Dig into scripture. Hold fast to his truth. Don't listen to the, to, to the media and whatever else out there. Focus on what he says is true. Hold fast to that. Encourage the brothers and the sisters in this room. Walk with them. Call out sin when you see it in love and gentleness so that we might all grow into a more, a more beautiful image of Christ. And then lastly, love your neighbor well. Share the truth of Jesus with them. This is what Acts is about. The church continues to go forth because Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and thank you so much for this time with Sojourn Heights. Father, we thank you for your goodness your mercy, that it follows us all the days of our life. Father, I pray for us. I pray for anyone in this room right now who is going through suffering, who is going through a hard time, who is experiencing pain. Father, we know that this is not 
what you uh, ultimately wanted, but we also know that you used this to sanctify us. So Father, I pray for anyone in here who is suffering, I pray that you would give them peace. I pray that you would remind them that you have not only experienced suffering, but you are suffering with them. Father, I pray that your peace would surpass, uh, surpass their understanding. Father, I pray that you would cause us to uh, go forth, to love our neighbors well, to declare the good news of Jesus. Father, we bless your name, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.